0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I am bringing you a guest interview. Today's guest is Dr. Nick Grainer. Dr. Nick It runs Grainer health solutions and focuses on a wide range of protocols to help both athletes and everyday people find solutions to their health and fitness. He focuses heavily on lifestyle medicine through exercise, nutrition, and working with people at an individual level. So for this interview, we dove into some of the protocols that Dr. Grainer uses to help people identify what solutions are going to work best for them as well as his own personal path forward. One reason I got connected with Dr. Grainer was because he actually follows a lower carbohydrate way of eating himself. So I was interested in the hows and whys that he got into that way of eating and how he's used it specifically with some of his clients at Grainer health solutions. So that'll be the interview today Uh, coming up on the podcast. And currently on the show's Patreon page are some interviews that I have with guests. First is Emily Spiegel. Emily is a doctor who focuses heavily on foot strength and proprioception. So we dove deep into essentially lower leg health and strength and fitness and kind of what you maybe want to consider with that side of your body when navigating your health and fitness journey. What are things you can do to make sure your lower legs and your feet don't become problems and trying to address some of these sort of things proactively versus doing what sometimes us runners will do and worry about these issues when they flare up and we get injured and have no choice but to deal with them also coming up on the show is my friend aaron alexander this was an in-person interview aaron's local to uh, to austin so i had him come over and we sat down and we chatted about his his full body alignment uh, Aaron has been a very interesting person for me to get to know. I had him on the show back at the end of the last year, and we dove pretty deep into kind of the breathing connection and how that actually is connected to, you know, different aspects of, of movement, our, our awareness and things like that. So I wanted to have him back on to dive a little bit deeper into his mind, body connection and his alignment method. Aaron Alexander has helped uh, folks like uh, Gerard Butler and, uh, toby mcguire in the past so he's certainly been impactful in some pretty big names out there it was fun to sit down and kind of dive a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that that he likes to do and learn more from him finally coming up is an interview i had with jackie hunt jackie is very interesting i actually got to know her back in 2020 a little bit when i was doing a treadmill hundred mile during the pandemic jackie had already done one her experience is a little unique compared to mine as she has a prosthetic on one of her legs. So she has really gotten into running after she had to have that, the lower part of her leg removed due to cancer earlier and hated running originally got into it after, uh, essentially it was a, something that was presumably taken off the table for her and now has gotten so far into it that she's currently 92 days, I believe, into a hundred days with 100 consecutive marathons. When I interviewed her, she was around 84 or so. So uh, that one will likely come out publicly when she hits that hundredth marathon, a hundred days, and that will actually be the female record for consecutive days running a full marathon. So it was interesting to hear from her about just, you know, what has she put into this in terms of time? What are some things that she has to do outside of the actual running itself? some of the hardest days and easiest days she's had in this process and things like that. And why she ended up doing two marathons in one of those days. So if you're anxious, you can check that one out on the show, Patreon page right now. Uh, Otherwise it'll be public in a few weeks. Uh, Quick plug for the show, Patreon page. If you do support the podcast through the Patreon page, a couple of the options that are available for you are ad free episodes. So we get cut right to the chase, jump right in with the guest, and it is also early release so oftentimes i'll record these episodes a couple weeks sometimes even as far as a month in advance so if you're anxious to see a specific guest supporting the show through the show patreon page allows you to get access to that a little bit quicker other ways to support the human performance outliers podcast is through single one-time donations which can be done at zachbitter.com forward slash hpo You can also support the show through the show sponsors. All show sponsors are listed with any discounts or promos for listeners at zackbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Sponsoring this episode is my friends at Bioptimizers and their product Breakthrough Magnesium. It is the only organic full spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of Magnesium. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. I take two of the capsules before bed at night. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. As always, Bioptimizers offers their 360-day money-back guarantee, so you can try them them out risk-free and see for yourself if they work for you. You can head over to buyoptimizers.com forward slash human and enter promo code human10. That's human A N one zero to get 10% off your next order. The link and promo is in the show notes and also at zackbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode's sponsors include Ice Barrel. Cold exposure and ice baths have been increasing in popularity for a variety of reasons. If you want to get a peek into how cold water exposure can feel, I would encourage you to try hopping into a cold shower first, just for a few minutes. Pay attention to how you feel when you get out. If you like it and want to take your cold water exposure to another level, Ice Barrel has an option for you. Ice Barrel is a cold therapy training tool that offers an easy way to bring ice baths to your routine and has a smaller footprint than most ice tubs. So If you don't have the space for an ice tub, but want the full body ice cold water exposure, the ice barrel may be a good option for you to check out. Once you have it, all you need to do is add water and ice and jump in for a few minutes. It is as easy to fill, drain, and move to a different spot. I've been using the ice barrel for a couple of reasons personally, although I still hesitate to get in. After a few minutes, I'm met with an increased mood or It sort of feels like a shot of caffeine when you get out. I also like to use it. If I have two hard workouts that are very close to one another or blocked back to back, I find it is helpful in clearing some of the tightness that comes from the first workout, which makes the second one a bit easier to tackle. After I finish the second hard session, I give the cold exposure a bit of a break and let the recovery process kick into full gear. If you've been using cold water exposure, I'd love to hear what your experience has been so far. So feel free to reach out and share that with me. If you're looking to up your cold water exposure game, Ice Barrel was named Men's Health Best Cold Therapy Tool in 2021. It comes with a 100% satisfaction guarantee, 30-day money-back guarantee, limited lifetime warranty, and ships in one to five days. If you're looking for a simple, fun, and easy way to get cold water therapy into your routine, try out Ice Barrel, go to icebarrel.com, that's I-C-E-B-A-R-R-E-L.com forward slash HPO and get $125 off your order when you use the code HPO at checkout. That's $120 off plus free shipping with the code HPO when you go to icebarrel.com forward slash HPO. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast, and today I have a guest interview with uh, Dr. Nick Greener. Dr. Nick, how's it going?
1: It's going well. Thanks for having me, Zach. How are you, sir?
0: Good, good. Yeah, you know, uh, I've been meaning to reach out to you. I've been following you on Twitter for a while. Uh, I I listened to a couple of the podcast episodes you've done on other shows, and it was like, I got to reach out to you. I got to reach out to Nick and have him come on and chat about some of this stuff, because I think we have a lot of kind of similar uh, thought processes, curiosities, and uh, I always love to hear from people who, especially people who are working with people, so that you can actually kind of see and hear what, what is and is not working kind of in the field versus what maybe we sometimes see and hear on, in research studies and things like that.
1: You know, that's very interesting that you bring that up, <clears throat> because um, Dr. Baker, Sean Baker put a video out a couple of weeks ago it was a clip of him sharing a success story of a gentleman who had heart, had a heart failure. He had a very Mm -hmm. low, very low ejection fraction. He was overweight and through a meat based diet that he ended up losing the weight. His heart function greatly improved. This is over a period of months. But Dr. Baker said something very astute. This is to your point. And he said, he posed the question of, was it the diet that did it? or was it the weight loss that did and He said, you can't know hundred percent. And I think that that gets lost on a lot of people because what you had said about people working with people, you know, in the field. And I always say that if you're a clinician, the, the only thing that people, well, I don't want to say the only thing, the thing that people care about the most is results. So if you're working with somebody with, with lifestyle intervention, and let's say there are numerous things you're helping them with, and they improve subjectively and objectively, right? Not, not that they're just only feeling better, but their scans are improved, blood work's improved, things like that. Imaging is improving. That's what they care about the most. And they're not in my experience, I've been doing this for about 14 years. And in my experience, people aren't picking and choosing or questioning. Well, was it the food that did it? Was it that I'm I'm, I'm walking daily or I'm, I'm sleeping better? I'm wearing my blue blockers at night. They just care that they got better. So for me, you know, that's in my again, my opinion, what people care about the most is am I improving?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think I think one of the reasons why I get interested in this stuff is because there are so many kind of unanswerable questions because of just the number of confounding variables that are included with living life. And, you know, I, I participate in a sport of ultra marathon running, which is kind of the same where relative to other sports, there's very little research that is can point to like, well, this is exactly what you need to do in order to find your best success. So with that we get a lot of anecdotes and we get a lot of people doing a variety of different things and we see success at in in that vast variety of things and and I just find that kind of uh pioneering aspect of these type of things kind of a fun fun thing to think about consider and and talk about uh even even when it gets a little heated on the social channels <laughs> right right uh, but yeah I mean I think uh what you said with with Dr Baker is is always interesting because uh it it does seem like that's a theme that kind of crosses a lot of the different dietary patterns. And even when you get like the the dietary guideline folks, uh, you know, they're, they're usually open to say, Hey, a lot of this stuff improves with weight loss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're, if you're working with someone who is in a position where weight loss is something that is going to be a valuable thing for them to do, it's, it seems like it's more important to get them to be able to do something that is going to make that maintainable versus something where it's just going to be like a quick loss and then regain or a yo-yo approach, which is uh, is what I think ends up happening when you just have like a very singular approach. Because right. from my experience, like any single nutritional strategy tends to have a fairly low success rate at a population level. And my question always at that point has been, well, why don't we just lay out all these options and then have the person pick the one that they think <clears> and they stick to the most sustainably. And if they can't, I mean, it's not the end of the world. You can always pivot to a new one and try it out. But it seems to me that this is something that if you start at an early enough age, you find like, you know, something that appeals to a person that they can stick to, they enjoy and they prefer over the other things. And then if we get like that percentage of every dietary Style that is successful, pile together. We can get closer to a hundred percent.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, is what, what do you see with the people that kind of come into your? Well, maybe we should start with this. You want to just tell the listeners a little bit about kind of your your setup, what you have going on?
1: Sure. So, primarily, I'd say we we do direct primary care. Um, I have several providers. There's four physicians, including myself. We have two nurse practitioners, one RN, um, but. What like I said, the direct primary care is what we do more, more more than anything, because we do have other services that we that we provide people. For example, uh, we do regenerative medicine as well. And what I would consider regenerative medicine are things like, you know, we we, there was a time we were seeing a lot of athletes, a lot of like local athletes, some professional level, some, you know, college level, where, you know, with injuries and things like that, we provide things like PRP and prolozone but we also do some uh, therapeutic things for, for certain conditions. And again, these are, these are specifically for people who it's indicated for, who it's safe for. Um, we make sure that we have all the labs necessary, blood work and things that we need to do, to, to do these things, but we do major autohemotherapy as well, <clears throat> excuse me, which is IV ozone therapy, um, ascorbic acid, things like that. We do limb bagging, ozone limb bagging, basically anything that's indicated safe for people, but that is more of on the, <clears throat> the regenerative medicine side of things. So the type of people that we see mostly are people that are metabolically broken, more or less. And I'm a lifestyle guy primarily, and um, you know my idea of Healthcare's Act, to be honest with you, man, is, is what's, necess- what's safe and effective and indicated for the, for the patient. That's really what my outlook is. If that's medicine, that's medicine. You know we put people on stuff all the time. If that's lifestyle intervention, it's lifestyle intervention. Now, I'll say this. In some cases, people need to be medicated temporarily or permanently. In some cases. For example, somebody has a thyroidectomy, they're going to have to be medicated. The gland is no longer in there. That is what I call limitation of matter. That person has to be medicated. That's some cases. But almost all cases, people need lifestyle intervention. So that's, what we provide people and what they need, if that's, you know, medicine, I'll tell you what, during, during the height of COVID, you know, we couldn't keep up, you know, we couldn't keep up with, with all the people we we're getting 30 calls a day. And, and and it was kind of funny, it just ended, but, um, that's more or less what we do in that show.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when this is, I've got a few questions that kind of came up when you were giving that description sure. and I don't want to sure. pivot too far, but, uh, one of the stuff with the regenerative medicine, I find really interesting and kind of, I guess on the forefront is that is the platelet-rich plasma stuff. And, uh, I've actually had that done on my right ankle. I had injured it this past year and, uh, I ended up getting some platelet-rich plasma put in And it was like kind of shocking to me. I, uh, my ankle had more or less healed, but it was still a little tight relative Mm -hmm. to my other one. Like I'd wake up in the morning and Uh, it was just kind of obvious, like it would get kind of like stuck in terms of like being able to kind of rotate forward as much as my left one would. And I got PRP done and it was like, I mean, it's, it swelled up for about 15 minutes just from the injection itself. Uh, so I kind of limped out of there, but then 15 minutes after that, I stopped at a gas station and filled up the tank and went inside. And I was like, holy, I couldn't believe how mobile my ankle was even within like that very short period of time. Is uh, is platelet rich plasma something that is being used for things other than kind of injury related stuff, or is that something that is kind of specific to trauma like uh, not, like I had?
1: Right. So for us specifically, that's mostly what we use it for. Um, there, I've read some things where they're using it um, other ways, but you know, we we kind of stick to our wheelhouse. So for the mm-hmm. most part, you know, we do we we do not do any spinal injections, whether that's with Prolozone or PRP. Um, no spinal joints, but anything else, you know, lots of knees. We do a ton of knees. I've had my, my knee done several times. I, I tore my meniscus, uh, lateral meniscus in my left knee, uh, twice. So I've had it done on myself and that's exactly what happens to me. It swells up mm-hmm. and then, and then it's, be- and then it's better. But I think that people, you know, active people, um, you know, again, depending on the person, if somebody's joint space is completely destroyed at that point, you know, becomes, you know, management. And sometimes that's just steroids. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but for what you're talking about, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it, it's fantastic.
0: Is uh, PRP in the knee area was, am I remembering that properly when it first came out, they couldn't do the knee, but they can now, or am I thinking of something
1: else? Um, no, that's accurate. Okay. Yeah, that's accurate.
0: Was it just a, how did they get to the point where they were able to do it with the knee then, whereas they weren't in the beginning?
1: My my understanding is that they were starting on small joints first, right? Mm-hmm. Wrist, ankles, smaller joints, and then moving on to the big ones. Like I said, we we don't see we don't do a lot. Like for example, like the hip joint is a very big joint. We don't mm-hmm. we don't do that. We don't do hips or a lot of hips. Excuse me, um, but mostly knees. We do do some ankles, and 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 oddly enough, the ankles that we do on most people are runners. Mm-hmm. So yeah,
0: yeah, something about impact in that first point. <laughs>
1: Listen, man, I'll tell you what, dude, you're 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 amazing. I mean, I I got a good buddy of mine in Texas um does Ultra and it's that's incredible to me, man. I mean, that's like superhuman to me.
0: It it was funny when I went in uh when I originally hurt the ankle. I had a big project coming up. So I went in and just got an MRI like as quick as I could because I needed to find out like what did I do to it? Is this something I gotta cancel the project over or do is it something that's just gonna clear up in a few days? And uh when the results came back, the doctor's like, you know. Uh, there's some mess in there, but it's not anything that I wouldn't expect from someone doing what it is you're doing. <laughs> it's crazy. Man. But it was funny. I went in, I had done like a like a 60 mile run and uh, I went in there and the they're like, so how did you hurt this? And I was like, I can't just tell them I went for a 60 mile run and heard it. I got to give them some context here. <laughs> they're going to just right. think this is, they're going to kick me out of here and be like, you're an idiot. Just don't, don't run 60 miles at a time. That's,
1: That's wild.
0: Dude. But yeah, so, it, but yeah, it's interesting stuff. Have you guys done anything with like stem cells too, or is it just mostly PRP?
1: Uh, so you, you mean injections? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do. We, we also do that too. But I tell people, you know, you got to be, you got to be careful um, with, with stem cell because it depends on who you ask. hmm Um, if you're, if people, they say to not use your own, um, after a certain age, right? So there are, there are, there are some places that that they're donated, you know, and it's, it's, it's all good. But, um, you know, I've had people that, you know, 55 year, my, my father-in-law, he shredded his knee skiing. He's in his seventies and they took stem cells from, from his, from his hip and, um, was, was a failure. This is when they were out in uh, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And then um, he had it done with donated ones and he, it worked like a charm. So, but we do do that. I would say from the injection standpoint, as far as injury goes, things like that, mostly PRP prolozone depend. I mean, it depends on the patient what's going on, um, for that stuff. But the pro I tell you what, for me, what I've had done, I've had, I've also had prolozone done. Um, that's basically an injection of ozone. We're putting ozone into the joint itself. Um, they they serve different purposes and you know, they, they do work fine, but depending on the situation, you know, I would say we, we do more PRP than we do ozone
0: Okay. What's the, what's the, the kind of thought process behind ozone?
1: So ozone is, is O3, right? So it's depending on the context. So we use it in an IV therapy as well. And what we do with, with ozone, uh, IV ozone, which the technical term is major autohemotherapy. We take out a certain percentage of somebody's blood. Now that depends on the person. Right. And mostly by the way, Zach, what we, what we're doing with IV ozone, we're seeing the people that we use that for, or what is indicated for are basically infections right now that could mean chronic infections, viruses, things like that. We see a ton of Lyme disease up here. Um, we see a lot of mold toxicity patients as well. So that's typically what it's indicated for. So we take out your blood, certain percentage of your blood. Um, we ozonate it, we put it in the bag, we introduce the ozone to it, saturates the red blood cells. It's very, very, ozone is very, very antiviral, antibacterial. And then we slow drip it back down to the body. Depending on the situation, the person It runs through a UBI machine, that's ultra, um, ultra, you know, the ultra irradiated blood through the, through the light, excuse me, and it goes back in. The The dose is dependent. Now in a joint, it's, 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 it is very healing. Like I said, very, very healing, anti-inflammatory. Um, we just mix it with some procaine, some mineral, and it's, and it's in the joint. Um, but like I said, just, you can use it for injuries. I've, I've used the ozone myself. I've just had better results with PRP personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting stuff. Uh, the next frontier, so to speak, I guess. <laughs> well, um, you know,
1: you know, real quick, Zach, I'm sorry. The, the thing about it was, you know, when we, when I decided I, I, I stumbled upon a couple of docs that were doing this, you know, I'm saying this humbly, but you know, there, the type of stuff in that context, the type of stuff that we're talking about now, there are not too many people clinics in the country that do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if somebody has chronic Lyme that they, they didn't get antibiotics in time and they're just bedridden, you know, we had somebody come from, uh, north carolina last week you know they're staying up here for a month or getting a hotel room because there's there's not too many people that do this stuff so um mm-hmm. we're grateful that we can offer it we're very grateful
0: yeah I've, i think the first time i ever heard of prp was years ago when it was really new and i think it was kobe bryant or one of the nba basketball players flew over to germany to get it because you couldn't even get it in the u.s yet at that time And it's like right at least now you're able to stay stateside. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I would I mean, I'm in Texas now, but when I got, uh, when I got my first injection like that, I was I actually flew into Texas to get it done. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And, uh, it'll be something I'll be curious to see how that develops over the years and how much more available it gets if we keep seeing kind of progress with it. But, right. yep. um, I want to kind of, or actually you mentioned Lyme's disease and I'm kind of curious about that one because, I, I've known some people who've gotten Lyme's disease before, and it just seems like like it's something they just deal with for the rest of their life in some shape or form. Is that something that you're seeing, or are there is there ever a path forward where the person has Lyme's disease and it's like okay, now they're back to a full capacity like they were before
1: that? So, if we if somebody knows, and again, this there's a lot of talk and maybe confusion. I guess there's the word that I would use in in the Lyme community about timeframes as far as infection, right? So. The way that I look at it is if I know somebody for a fact had a tick on them, let's say it was within, let's say 24 hours, you can get it out. I always tell people to get those, those tick removing devices. They're cheap. They work great. I pull them off my dogs all the time because we're outside. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I live out kind of in the middle of nowhere a little bit. Um, Go get an antibiotic, right? What we see is chronic Lyme. And these people range from, mild mildly debilitated to bedridden and some people i would say half are managing the chronic Lyme at least trying to manage it with lifestyle they're eating well I, I i know a lot of people like that right now who are you know they're they're eating well uh some of these people you know they're they're snowbirds they spend their summers or excuse me their winters in florida then they come back here for the summer i'm i'm in uh, southwestern pa just out right outside of pittsburgh and um you know, doing other things and some other therapies, and some do okay. Some relapse, but some do 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 horribly. So, in my experience, and I and I never claim cures, right? I, I'm very careful with with these things, but I will tell you this anecdotally, in my experience, the things that seems to work the best for chronic Lyme and even co-infections, right? Because typically with Lyme comes co-infections. And when we do labs, especially for, in the context of Lyme, um, we always make sure that we're doing co-infection as well. So a lot of people have underlying viruses and things like that, that they don't know about. And if they carry heavy viral burden, this, this is seems to be pretty good for it too. And we always confirm with blood work. Um, uh, excuse me, ozone therapy works extraordinarily well, anecdotally that I've seen in the time. Um, So, you know, but, but again, we always are recommending, like, for example, here's what I would never do. I would never have somebody come to see me or somebody comes to see us and they say, I have chronic Lyme. I'm in really bad shape, but my lifestyle is awful. I want you guys to hook me up to ozone. We would coach them about lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of these things, you know, I guess you could consider some of the things that we're talking about as hacks, biohacks. I, I wouldn't, but some people would, right? But what we're talking about is a low-hanging fruit, right? So we got to get the low-hanging fruit in order, your sleep, your diet, your movement, you know, getting your light environment right, at the same time as you're doing this other stuff. So um, I think it's a combination of things, but people who even still are are struggling with with a good lifestyle, you know, the ozone seems to, like I said, extraordinary is the word I would use, anecdotally. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Interesting, but you're you're uh, typically going to try to target that through like what I would consider like the pillars of performance or health in that matter, which I think is like sleep, proper stress recovery, and then nutrition are the three that I always think about as like first, let's get these big rocks taken care of, and then then let's start the biohacking, so to
2: speak.
1: Right, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, imagine, I mean, yeah, and that's that's, and I think that the the way that the the world is now because we're, we're so full of information. That that's what people want to do. It's like they they want to. I, I posted on Twitter earlier, like maybe a half hour before we got on, this picture. I get sent these things all the time, right? It was it was the supplement. It was called uh, Fastic, I believe, mm-hmm. and it says you know helping your body you know fast or whatever. And this, and I turn it over, and it's like eighty milligrams of magnesium. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, if you're gonna I, look, I'm gonna I love fasting, man. You know, I do time restricted feeding. I do extended fast from time to time. I mean, minerals, I mean, stay hydrated, get your minerals, I right? You don't, I don't know that you need to take this, but, but yeah, no, you're exactly right. You, you got to get the, the, the low hanging fruit in order first because that is, that's what's going to help, obviously. So mm-hmm. that we, but we, but we address that, obviously.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It seems interesting where like, it's like an order of operations things. And, but do, do you get a lot, do you get a lot of like uh, pushback with that when people come in, or is it kind of, are you, established enough where people kind of know if i go in I, I should be ready for the lifestyle intervention first and then uh if i can you know see some progress with that or show some application there and still not get the relief i'm looking for then i'll have the access to some of those other things that are going to be a little more kind of individual
1: based so we have that reputation of the lifestyle people here right so that's that's the reputation that we have so i would say firstly that the people that come to us, have usually been on the medical merry-go-round for a time to where they're, it's, they're, it's, they're either tired of it or it's not working, so they know what they're getting into. Second, I'll say that, in, let's say we're talking about a Lyme patient that doesn't have their stuff, you know, the low-hanging fruit in order. The process that we go through with our, our patients is they talk to either me or one of our providers. The first consultation, we ask them a million questions, kind of get an idea of what's going on. We'll, we'll write them a script for labs. We'll get some lab work done. And then we come up with a plan. Um, we don't make people, for example, with somebody with chronic Lyme, we're not making them wait to, to get treatment, right? As we're getting them their labs and scheduling them, because depend, you know, depending on what, what's going on, you, we might have a two-month wait for a certain service. So while we're, we're getting all that stuff in order, the labs setting up their appointment to get the treatment done, we're talking about their lifestyle. So it's kind of at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I, and I think most people are probably in that situation. They want to hear like an order of operations or like a, like an action plan of like, if this, then this and that sort of thing where then they kind of know, like they're not kind of in the dark as to how things are going to progress. If things go, you know, either according to plan or off the, the original intent, uh, it makes sense. Uh, yeah. I, I, well, I, you mentioned uh fasting intermittent fasting as like a tool that that you'll use personally and sometimes with with clients, is there a like a process that you use to either recommend intermittent fasting or fasting for a specific patient, or is it kind of just like when people come in and are interested about it you're you're ready and able to educate them about it
1: so the first thing if 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 we're talking about somebody who completely knows nothing about time restricted feeding or you know nutrition whatever we all we we address hunger first right so I don't, um, put people on any type of specific, uh, window. What we'll do is we'll, we'll recommend dietary changes, right? First Mm -hmm. and foremost. And then what usually happens is that people find themselves not being hungry as often. And that time restricted feeding thing kind of just naturally works in, um, but there are people who are familiar with it, who have been doing some sort of time restricted feeding. You know, I, I was talking to a guy just—I uh, think it was Monday this week—who um, you know, familiar with us and familiar with wh- what we do, and knows I'm a big you know time restricted feeding guy. And he had been doing kind of like a two-mad, you know, like a like a two and an eight p.m. type of a situation. Mm-hmm. And he asked me my thoughts, and basically, what we decided that he he would he agreed to try was moving his eating window earlier in the day. So there are certain situations where, you know, we're coaching them on that, but somebody fresh, you know, it, the first thing regarding, at least regarding nutrition is let's, let's address hunger first. Let's change the foods that we're eating this way. You know, the, the satiety kind of works itself out and then we kind of go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The the positioning of the eating, the feeding window has always been interesting to me because I remember when timer stick feeding and intermittent fasting kind of got popular it seemed to me as just like kind of a, a casual observer that most people were doing like uh, like late morning, early afternoon as their first feeding window and kind of targeting that afternoon evening as they're, they're, feeding and the AM hours would be the ones where they wouldn't. And I, my, my first thought about that was, I wonder if that's because you kind of have this situation where, you know, most people aren't eating in the middle of the night unless they're like, right. I don't know, really hungry or sleepwalking and eating or something like that. But uh, you're waking up in the morning, presumably with probably like an eight, most people are probably getting like an eight to 10 hour at fast default, just from the sleeping hours. And, uh, and you know, assuming they're not eating like the minute before they go to bed at night. And you probably are in this position where your, your body has sort of transitioned or pushed past that kind of like those hunger pangs you might get in the first few hours, uh, of a, like a normal fast. So you wake up in the morning, not feeling all that hungry comparatively. So it's just easier to kind of ride that satiety until early afternoon when the hunger pangs kick in, like, okay, now it's time to eat. Right. And then after people started doing it frequently enough, as typically happens, they're like, okay, we got to get around to researching this now because there's a lot of people doing it. There's interest in it. There's probably funding now too. And, and a lot of the research I saw seemed to point to like an earlier feeding window being a little more optimal, uh, Is that what you've seen too? And has that been difficult for people to kind of transition to if they're used to eating in the afternoon and evenings to moving that feeding window to the morning and then having this big gap of time between their last meal and when they go to bed
1: at night? Yes, to both of those questions. Um, I think socially, it's not practical to have an earlier eating window. You know what I mean? Now, I think that's, again, just my experience for the most part. You know, me personally, when I started time restricted feeding, I did noon, four and 8 PM. Those are my three meals. And then, you know, I, I, tinkered with my eating window over the years. And, um, you know, you just learn, right. You, you live and learn. And for a lot of reasons, you know, um, I, I think the easiest way for, for me to say this to most people is, is if this, you know, we are humans that, you know, that, that are, we we run on light more or less. Right. So I tell people first and foremost, you can, if, if it's light outside, it's okay to eat. Right. Once the, once the, once it's dark out, the kitchen is closed. So I think that that's fair. Um, and, and that's why, you know, we have more, more grace during the, the like the, the spring and summer to eat more because the days are longer. You know I mean? You think biologically, um, you know, we do it backwards here. Everybody wants to get shredded for the summer. And you know what I mean? And then the winter time we want to eat a bunch of food, that's biologically backwards. Um, You know, the fruits and vegetables, I'm a low carb guy, you know, 100%. I love low carb. um, But you know, spring and summer, that's when the stuff grows, fruits and vegetables grow, you know, wintertime, it's, that doesn't stop, that stuff doesn't grow. Mm -hmm. So I think from that perspective, that's, that's, that's the one point. But I mean, even for glycemia, I mean, there's a lot of the, like the, the light guys, circadian guys, like these guys and gals that I, that I like to follow. I mean, there's solid data out there that earlier time restricted feeding is, is more beneficial than later. But also, let's say you eat three meals a day, you, you would even want to eat more food earlier in the day, right? So your biggest meal, what's that saying? You know, uh, breakfast like a king, you know, and, and, and it goes on. You, you mm-hmm. want, you want, you would want, again, in, in a perfect world or practically speaking, you would want as you eat later for the meal to be smaller or, or not eat at all. So, you know, for me, um, I typically don't eat anything after 4 p.m. I don't hold that 100%. You know, um, I was skiing last weekend. There were a bunch of us in the house and I ate way later than I ever do. And was up way later than ever, but typically I'm done by 4 p.m. But it, it definitely is a challenge, the time-restricted feeding thing um, for people who are, people say, what do I want to go out to eat? You know, I'm not going to tell people to not go out to eat. I mean, look, here, here's th- these, the things, that I consider myself to be a glorified coach. Um, and I give recommendations that, in my opinion, are in the patient's best interest, the person's best interest, and they're going to do it or they're not, right? but there are challenges that come along with that, you know, eating earlier for sure.
0: Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors include Buy optimizers and their magnesium supplement, magnesium breakthrough. You can get 10% off and a $365 money back guarantee by checking out their products. Also ice barrel bringing you space efficient, cold water immersion products. So Head over to Zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors to check out the promo codes details for these two sponsors as well as any other sponsor of the HPO podcast. The interesting thing about uh about it is like the the daylight stuff versus like the evening eating. Is that from your experience? completely like circadian rhythm based, or is that like a digestion thing too, where like, it's like you're giving your body something to possibly have to do while you're sleeping that it would maybe prefer not to, if you're eating like a big meal right before you go to bed.
1: Yes, that's more or less, you want your body to have to focus on, on sleeping and recovery. You know, you don't, you don't want to have this, this big glucose incursion and have insulin raised, you know, the hormones, you know, you have melatonin, you have serotonin, all these things, the waves that ride during the day, earlier eating, depending on again the season and what you're eating, um, you want to kind of live by that as, as close to as possible. But, you know, and here's the thing too I, I have people, and again, this is why N of one, you know, I have people say, if you're going to eat carbs eat them later in the day you know i sleep better and things like that or you know i if i'm going to eat carbs i i eat carbs around my training and so on and so forth and you have this the, the, your training window where you have to get protein within you know i think that the 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 window after training is is bigger than people make it to be um i think that we have a few hours to get the nutrients in you know i'm, I'm not going to i have done resistance training on no food <clears throat> i don't recommend it but there are reasons to kind of, you want to honor that wave throughout the day, you know, the hormonal wave and things like that, excuse me. And, but you have N of one and something I will say too, I think that everybody for at least a month should, should have a CGM attached because this way you can see what's going on. And I understand we're going to have the, the, the fluctuations depending on what you eat. Um, I like postprandial glucose response, you know, giving that window to make sure you recover in time that, you know, if you eat something, you know, when, when, when you do glucose tolerance tests for diabetics, things like that, but you can get a really good idea of what is creating these large spikes, <clears throat> right. But typically low carb people, you know, they have these nice, even this nice, even blood glucose throughout the day, things like that. Um, so I would say you know, seasonal eating, if you're, if you're metabolically healthy, you know, I wouldn't tell somebody who's a type two diabetic to eat a bunch of bananas, right? <laughs> seasonal eating, if you're, if you're, if you're generally healthy, um, again, low carb during, during the proper time, maybe a little bit more during the proper time. But again, this is all based on the individual and, um, you know, eating earlier really is it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. 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 It's, it's,
0: it's interesting just to kind of hear all the different like approaches and, and what's worked well and what kind of pairs up with the research we do have. And, and then how does it actually impact people's actual, like eventually you got to get around to doing it. So it's like, right, exactly. it, it's one of the reasons why I like, uh, I like like kind of like an 80, 20 or 90, 10 rule when it comes to any sort of strict protocol, assuming you can, you can, I mean, if you are like someone with Lyme's disease or type two diabetes, so if you may have a situation where you have to be a little more strict, but, uh, just because I think like, for whatever reason, the mindset around food and people seems to be like, at first mistake, it's like the floodgates open then. And it's like, if I make one mistake, like that first mistake in the week, all of a sudden it's like, well, I I'm off the program now, then it's three, four days of that versus like, oh, I made this mistake for one meal. Oh, well, big deal. I'll get right back to it. And then if I stick to it, with the next few days, then that one mistake will probably not even be noticeable in the grand scheme of things. But if you let that one mistake compound, then it, then it will be noticeable. <laughs> so for whatever reason, I think like the whole 100% compliance thing is is probably unsustainable in our food environment for most people, uh, unless they have something that's very, uh, very important that they kind of get hit in the face with.
1: Right, right. No, and I agree wholeheartedly. And that's that's, I mean, there are more, you know, more more factors of overeating than just the type of food. You know what I mean? And, and I and I know for a fact, I mean, we all know this, right? That there are certain foods that hijack satiety. For example, me, I can have a big piece of salmon, some vegetables, and feel, and I'm I'm good. I'm good to go, right? If I go to my refrigerator and get a, a piece of cheddar cheese, hard sharp <laughs> cheddar cheese. I'm instantly hungry again. And I know people, and this is why it's important for people to recognize what their triggers are. Mm-hmm. So I, I can definitely overeat depending on what I'm eating. But there's, there's, there's economic things going on that that can affect that and, and socioeconomic things that can affect that as well. But to your point, what if what if you're the type of person that if you do, let's say, fall off the wagon for a day, it creates that spiral. Like me personally, you know, I talk a lot about Reese's cups. You know, as as much as I, I love them, I probably eat maybe two a year. Mm-hmm. But you know, if if I were to do something like just eat a bunch of chicken wings and French fries and let's say a piece of the cake, it'll make me feel like crap. But the next day I'll be okay. You know, it's not gonna send me down a spiral, but some people it will. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you gotta recognize that. You know, I I can keep look, I have three box freezers in my garage. One of them is like half full of Reese's cups. (laughs) I I know it's there, but I don't ever go there. So Mm -hmm. it's important that people recognize these things and you can, you can, what you can get away with and what you can't.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: That, that is an interesting like variance from one person to the next. Cause I mean, I know people too, who it's like, they can open up a bag of chips and have a handful and then put it away and not touch it again until the next day. And then, you know, there's the people who they open it up and it's like that for, it will what was it? Is it Doritos that had that commercial back in the day where it was like, I dare you to try to eat one or Lay's one of those right. companies? Right. <laughs> so there was like they knew there was a portion of the population. It was probably their their customer base for the most part that exactly. weren't going to be able to resist. And it was uh it was so obvious they weren't afraid to even say it in their marketing. But right,
2: right.
0: <laughs> do you find with uh because I the, the one thing I find interesting with the time restricted feeding, or especially when you get into like the OMAT or one meal a day, is I see the application there for someone who has this situation where I think Dr. Peter T has talked about this before where he's like, I can sit down and eat a 3000 calorie meal, no problem. And I might not even be completely full after that. So right. he, for him, he's like, you know, if I know that I'm going to be in a situation where I'm going to probably eat 3000 calories in one sitting, it behooves me to have one meal that day. Cause that's about what I'm going to burn. And uh, then there's people I think who, they end up in that position because they've kind of abstained for food for so long right. and they may actually over consume or improper, maybe the better way says improperly consume Cause it could be like the first thousand to 1500 calories of that meal are really good, high quality stuff. But then it's like, at the end of that, they're still hungry. Cause they haven't eaten all day. And then they're plowing through the Reese's peanut butter cups and all that other stuff. Yes. Do, do you see very, yeah. How much variance do you see with that to where it's like a slam dunk for one person, but like just, you need to be spreading it out a little more with another
1: man. That's such a great question. And and yes, I do see that. And it's, and I, I personally fell into that myself because I was doing one meal a day for a while. Um, when I, I did a carnivore diet for 18 months, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing that on a carnivore diet and I, I, over, I could overeat on one meal a day without question, and I will say there are times where I wouldn't, I wouldn't be hungry, or at least I didn't think I was hungry. And then once I started eating, I'm like, okay, this is this tastes good because I, I was eating meat, I was eating you know ground beef, I was eating any, any animal, and um, you absolutely can overeat. Um, also, people who maybe have eating disorders. That's a tough one, man. You know, mm-hmm. I I don't, I'm I'm not, um, you know, board certified in, in, in any of that. I have one physician that is as far as uh, the, like the, that, that aspect of it, like the psychological aspect of it. Um, but you can run into that hundred percent. So, and I will say this as well, while you're at, while you're talking, I was thinking, I think the benefits that come along, like when people talk about fasting and autophagy, right? Cellular cleaning and things like that getting rid of senescent cells. I think that calorie restriction in and of itself is, is a good idea, right? Generally speaking. So there's a lot of solid data on that. To just, you don't have to skip a meal or two, just eat less overall, right? But also having lean muscle is very protective. Being active is very protective. But as far as, you know, the point of just eating and, and time yeah, you have to be careful and meet people where they are because if you recognize that somebody has an eating disorder um or a tendency to overeat and, and hunger, right? So I think going back to what we said a moment ago is getting hunger under control, right? Here's some very satiating foods, here are some healthy foods, eat them until you're eat them until you're not hungry anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if it naturally works into where they're they're only eating for maybe, you know, eight to ten hours a day, then then that's cool. Um Extended fasting, I think, is another thing too. Um, I've, I the longest fast I've ever done was nine days. I've ne- I'm not going to ever do that again. Um, I, I, you know, I would I would never tell somebody outright to do that. I have worked with people making sure you know, we're testing their 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 um, their electrolytes, some other things to make sure that they're okay if they're doing a long fast because they decided to do it. But um, there is benefits to time restricted feeding eating earlier, but there's also benefits to just not eating a bunch of food, mm-hmm. whether you're eating four or five, you know, if you can eat four or five times a day and if you just don't eat too much, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's sometimes It's just, I think the, the more I talk to people like yourself about this, the more I start thinking just around along the lines of like, we need to have like a pretty vast variety of options. And then, work on learning what the most likely scenario is when you get certain personality traits or certain types of people, and then be able to kind of maybe direct them into what you assume, but also be willing to pivot if it doesn't work. And, right. um, and that kind of brings, brings me to, uh, the dietary guidelines where, Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> we'll try not to get you into too much trouble here, but <laughs> the, the dietary guidelines I find interesting. Cause it's like, I, I just see that. I just see it like any diet, like, you know, there's a low success rate with them uh there's uh so there are people who manage to do well with it so i wouldn't want to mm-hmm. say like that way of eating as it's currently constructed should just be completely thrown out the window and demonized but i don't think it should be necessarily given any any like holy grail from a right. government body right. because it's like you know it also is going to fail at a super high rate and i think a lot of that's due to the food environment but it's also just due to people's own preferences and what they actually we'll be able to sustainably do when it's actually put into practice. And at at that point, I think, you know, we get back to what we've been talking about, which is like, why not just say like, Hey, there is like, there's some key things here that we want to kind of hit. Let's see if we can hit them, but let's hit them with the foods that you want to be eating, the foods that are going to actually be satiating for you, the foods that are actually going to be rewarding for you. So you look forward to eating them and you don't feel like, Oh, I got to get through this meal. And then you're always just kind of like, holding yourself back. Cause if you're just always feeling like you're holding yourself back, eventually you're going to, I think just, you know, fall off the wagon. And when you can get rid <laughs> yes. of that sensation.
1: So I, the, the, to your, to your last point there about fall, you know, falling off the wagon, you know, willpower, I don't like willpower, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I because hunger in this context of, you know, nutrition or eating hunger eventually gets us, you know what I mean? It will, mm-hmm. I was a competitive bodybuilder in my 20s, and I could barely hold on for the cut. You know I mean? And I mean, I would cut for five months, and that was – that was I, I barely made it. You know what I mean? And it was, all, it was sheer willpower. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you could go on some super low-calorie diet. You know, there's a lot of these fads out there. They're giving you hormone drops. And they're telling you 500 calories a day. Yeah, you're going to lose weight. Of course you are. You know what I mean. Um, But that's not sustainable. And and I think, you know, the thing that's that's, you know, regarding satiety, if you look, one of the highest satiety foods is potatoes. Mm -hmm. Look, I love potatoes. I I eat a sweet potato every now and then. But again, it's it's based off around my training. And can I can I am I going to use this fuel? You know, I'm not going to eat a bunch of carbohydrates if I didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean. Potatoes are high and very high in satiety on the satiety index. But what makes potatoes delicious when you put butter on them?
0: <laughs> right? Oil, butter, and salt. Oh,
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. So you make it taste extraordinarily good. And I think the fat and, and carbohydrate combo is the thing that is one of the big things that makes us overeat, right? I can't stand plain baked potatoes. Put mm-hmm. some butter on that thing and I could crush it. So I think there's I think a lot of our food environment is a combination of carbohydrates and fats. And, you know, that to me is, is part of, is part of the bigger problem. So are, are people eating foods that are hijacking their, they say, they say you know, cause I, I see all the time. Look, what's interesting to me is that there's that one show is called my 600 pound life. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have these people, I, I never really watched it religiously. I, I saw a couple of episodes, but the thing that always broke my heart was when I, these people, these morbidly obese people. They, they, when they were being interviewed, the couple of episodes that I saw, these people said the same thing. They said, I don't want to eat this much food. I don't want to eat all this, food. I, but I can't stop. But if you look at what they're eating, it's hyper palatable junk. So, and I'm not saying that it w- that it's easy to make that transition. Right. But you have to, right. You have to, we have to figure out what's causing people to overeat. And I think one of the biggest things is the hyperpalatable food. Um, I don't think Americans or people, at least in the West, got got overweight because we 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 were eating too many berries. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's a big thing. That the hyperpalatable food, the combination of carbohydrates and fats together, are are is like doom.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I think the, I think you're spot on there because it's like when you look at the ends of the spectrum, it's like uh, as, as crazy as they may be, there's not a lot of fat fruitarians and they're eating nothing but sugar. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you get the same thing on the other side to a degree too. I mean, the carnivore, there's not a lot of, you're, you get, you get uh, carnivores maybe a little more recent than the fruitarian movement, but, uh, mm. you, you get the people in that group, in that group too. You just don't see a lot of people struggling with obesity. And if, if they are, it's, they're, they probably were before and they're trying to fix that with the carnivore diet. And right. and I'm sure there's some of that with the fruitarian side of things too. But, uh, yeah, it's like this weird combination thing that kind of triggers that, that, uh, you know, switching your brain to just kind of keep going at it mindlessly. And, and there's not a lot, the, the, like you said, the willpower is, is finite. And if you're always kind of pulling from that, eventually it's going to break. And, right. um, then we're back to, what we were talking about before where like, once you break, are you in a position to say like, okay, I made a mistake. Now let's redirect and continue the path forward and make it just like maybe one step back, two steps forward. A lot of people just seem to be like, all right, now the, now we're off the wagon. And it's like, it's a multi-day, if not uh, a permanent uh, change of what they were doing before. So, um, yeah. It's interesting stuff. Did, so you follow a low carbohydrate diet. You said you've tried the carnivore diet for about a year and a half. What, what first got you interested in low carbohydrate for yourself personally?
1: So I long story short, my mom was, was, was sick. Well, she, she had chronic migraines and she went through a bunch of, she went through living hell trying to figure out how to get rid of them. And the guy that helped her was a lifestyle guy. And he basically, this was my goodness twenty. 25 years ago and um, worked with her with her entire lifestyle. A lot of this stuff that I, that I, I got into, I got into during this period because this guy was like talking about things like, um, you know, personal care products, what type of personal care products do people use, you know, um, healthy using, using healthy or good soap, you know, soap with not a bunch of terrible ingredients or whatever the case may be. But that's where the first I heard about time-restricted feeding, but low carb, kind of came along with that back then. Um, there was, I believe maybe it was, was Mercola then, maybe the, he was the one of the first person, Dr. Mercola, I heard about low carbohydrate diet. Um, so I basically just ate meat and vegetables. And then the carnivore diet came when I was having some, some minor GI things, right? And I'm like, okay, well, there's this guy, Sean Baker, I'm talking about the carnivore diet. I'm hearing all these things about people getting rid of plants and they're like, they're, they're, these issues are going away. I'm like, I wonder if this will help my, my minor, you know, GI stuff. And it did, it did. But I, I learned to, to know like for example, um, there are certain vegetables that don't agree with me. I just avoid them. Right. So, but now I'm pretty much, I'm, a, I, I do eat animals. I eat low carbohydrate vegetables for the most part on days that I train, which is most of the week. I, um, I'll introduce some carbohydrates usually in the form of a a sweet potato, something like that. So basically, but I do eat a lot of fish, a lot of seafood, a ton of seafood. That's mostly what my diet is made of. Um, some poultry, I do eat ground beef from time to time and then low carb vegetables, the ones that don't mess with me. That's basically what I do now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you, when you, when you went to the carnivore diet for, for that
0: extended period of time? You, did you introduce the vegetables back kind of one at a time to see how they kind of jive with you?
1: Absolutely did. What it turns out was the Brussels sprouts, um, that, that classification of vegetables, right? Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, things like that. Um, really, really mess with me. When I say mess with me, I mean, bloating, very, very gassy. And and people will say, well, you know, you, you have to introduce them back slowly. I did. I, I, I really did. Um, the brassica vegetables seem to really do a number on me. So I avoid those, um, fruits. Look, I love fruit, man. Uh, I, 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 tend to stick to mostly things like zucchini, um, avocado from time to time berries. I do love berries. So the fruits I'm, I'm pretty limited, but I do love berries. I don't eat any nuts, no nuts for me. And it's another thing too. They're easy for me to overeat, but when I was on the carnivore diet, so here's the thing, right? I think that, you know, to say that calories are irrelevant, I think is a little bit of a stretch. Um, Obviously, there's other reasons why people overeat. But um, if you're sitting down, let's say, for example, you're sitting down, you have five or six ground beef patties. You slap a piece of cheese on each one of those. That's hundreds of extra calories, Mm -hmm. right? Hundreds. So, you know, you got to be careful. Um, even because you no know, cheeses, you know, there's no, it's low carb, Look, cheese is low carb. She so can, you know, eat a bunch of cheese or whatever. I, I, you know, I don't do that. You know, um, I'm not knocking people who do, but you know, I, I come from a bodybuilding background and I tracked everything, everything. I weighed my food. I, I, I was counting ri- individual rice pieces. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I got this 5% body fat, you know what I mean? Eating chicken, broccoli, and rice in a deficit. So I'm not discounting that, but I think listen for the general population. Well, the Last time we looked, what was 88% of the country's metabolically broken? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, 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 you're not going to tell 88% of the population to count their chicken rice and broccoli, right? they're yeah. going to be starving. <laughs> so you know you want to work with them on 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 a level that they can get that they can get on board with and you know get their hunger control first for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: the bodybuilding world is interesting to me because I feel like that sport kind of uh, selects for some of the like the strongest willpower people on the planet. Yeah, I, I was, I think it was Mark Bell I was talking to, and he was he was telling me about uh, one of the uh, the professional bodybuilders who was like top in his in in the sport for a while had a like a situation where he was in the middle of his cut, and Mark was saying they're like typically like for the, for the natural bodybuilders, it's like a 16 week process. He's like the ones that are the non-natural competition. They can maybe whittle that down to eight if they're lucky, but, uh, you I mean to 16 weeks. So we're looking at four months that is very, very strict and yes. just gets progressively more strict as you go. So it's not even like, all right, I got to bite this bullet and hold on for 16 weeks. It's like, I got to bite this bullet and then keep ratcheting down every week and every week. And he was telling the story of one of the professionals who he got like a couple weeks out of competition, and I believe he was he he had like a party because he got this big sponsorship offer that was like life changing, and uh, just went off the wagon and just went and ate like the whole left side of the value meal or something no. like that <laughs> in the middle of his cut. And they're like they're like we found him out in his car crying because he's like he knew he had just lost the competition. There's no way he was rebounding from that. And it's like one mistake, right? one mistake in a 16 week window is like all it takes at that level. So it's like, it, I mean, it's just insane. Like the, the amount of willpower that, that you, that those folks have when they're getting into that side of things. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's an unrealistic expectation, obviously. I mean, here you had a guy whose entire life and career was built around this and he even made a mistake. So like, oh, right. um,
1: yep. yeah, That's it should nice. be a,
0: a sign for all of us to maybe pay attention to <laughs>
1: exactly right. And you know, it's, it's, it's a journey, right? It's, it's a, it's a marathon. It's, it's not a sprint. Um, you know, and I think that that's kind of the, the mindset that maybe for somebody, let's say, for example, they're, they're doing really well for a few weeks and then they, they, they fall off for whatever reason. They, they believe, and this is just my opinion, that they, that it's all, that they lost everything that it was all for all, they did all that for nothing and they're, they're ruined again. And that's just, it's biologically and physiologically not true. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that there, you know, if you're, if you're metabolically broken, if you're a type two diabetic, maybe that's worse than if you weren't, but I think it all goes back to the mindset with that. And, I, and even with the bodybuilding, you know, and you're exactly right. Like it gets to the point to where when you're, when you're getting very close to the, to the, to the competition, you're not drinking water. You're eating ice chips with your, with your food. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that, you know, so you're, you're. That's what you're paying attention to on, on that level. And it's, so maybe for somebody like me, it's easy to say, well, you know, I had this the other day, or I had this last night and it wasn't on my plan. I typically don't do that. And I feel like crap, but I'm good today because I, I, I've been on the, on the other end of the spectrum. So, but people that's why I think like a a lot of clinics are starting to put in these people like psychologists, right? They have psychologists in their clinic to work with people on that level too, because it is a mindset as well. And I think that's very important. I don't have one on staff. Um, but that's a very, very big part of it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned you, you, you called yourself a glorified coach. I'll I'll give you a little more credit than that, but, uh, (laughs) it is kind of funny because it's, uh, one of the reasons I got interested in following Virta was partly because I'm interested in low carbohydrate and that's their kind of approach, but it's also just like a really interesting like support group too, where their success rates are much higher. And I can't think it has just as much to do with the support structure, the coaching that is kind of embedded within that program as much as anything, because it's like, if you do make a mistake, it, you know, like we said before, it's easy to fall off the wagon, but if you have a group or something to turn to and say, hey, this happened, walk me through this, then it's a lot easier to say, oh, they'll, they'll, they'll talk you off that ledge. They can say like, yeah, okay, well, this is something that happens to all of us. They may have like a bunch of stories they can share about other people who've done the same thing. And then it's like, this is the move forward. And then they're just looking for that affirmation really to say like, it's fine. Now let's get back to where we were before and move forward versus move backwards. And then, you know, that sometimes that's all it takes. So like, is that kind of what you're trying to create? The kind of culture you're trying to kind of create with what you're doing?
1: I'm always one, one thing, you know, I'm a lot of things, but one thing I am not is not transparent. Um, I tell people all the time. I mean, I put it on social media. If I have bourbon, I tell people on social <laughs> media, I post my pictures of, of when I eat what I shouldn't eat. Um, well, I shouldn't say what I shouldn't eat. That's not, I, I shouldn't say that because somebody might take that the wrong way. When I fall off plan or I eat something that I, I typically don't eat, I don't have any shame, Zach. I, I really don't. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, in my opinion, and I'm saying this humbly again, that that we do have a successful model is because we, we're very transparent with our people. You know, we tell them, Hey, listen, it's, it's going to happen. It happens to everybody. Somebody said to me one time, they said "The." It was, it was said about me publicly in this area by another physician. I think it was by, it was an endocrinologist. And this endocrinologist, and they got back to me and said, there's only one person in Pittsburgh that can eat that way. And he dropped my name as if I'm special, right? And it was kind of like a backhanded compliment. And meaning that, you know, you're an endocr- endocrinologist and you're seeing a lot of type two diabetics, right? So in something, you know, it's almost like they don't have high hopes for their people. And listen, here's the thing. I have very high hopes for my people, right? Um, we lift them up. You know, the thing that I'll never understand is this. When you have a healthcare provider, whoever, that says this, that, that with, purposefully withholds potentially life-saving information, for example, like, let's, let's say a low-carbohydrate diet, I've, I've heard people say, physicians, say, I'm not going to tell them to do that. They wouldn't do it anyway. It's too hard for them. I'm thinking to myself, that's not your call to make. Right. How do you know that they're not going to do it? If you, you gotta at least tell them. So that this is I'll never understand that. So for us, you know, we're lifting these people up. We're saying you absolutely can do this. I got your back. If you fall off, so what it happens to us, and it's all good. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about direct primary care is that it's accountability. And in my opinion, the biggest thing that's missing in healthcare is accountability, not just you know, more information. We got plenty of information, but The right information with accountability is what works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. One other thing I forgot to ask you when you were talking about kind of the reintroduction of vegetables Mm -hmm. uh, after your carnivore experiment was, uh, first of all, I think like if nothing else, the carnivore diet is like the optimal elimination diet, right? Like you pretty much remove anything that could possibly be a trigger. And then you have this blank slate where you can sort of reintroduce things and find things out. And you mentioned Brussels sprouts as being a trigger for you. And then that, that kind of indicated that the whole family that it's within is also potentially going to be an issue. Is that a good way to maybe like think about that when you're doing with people as they're reintroduced? Cause that can be kind of tedious too, where it's like, okay, I've been following this elimination diet for 30 or however many days. And now I have to reintroduce foods one at a time. Uh, do, do you ever, do you have like a structure where it's like, Well, if Brussels sprouts cause this reaction, there's a whole nother group of vegetables that we can reintroduce at some point in time. But right now, let's assume those may also be a problem. So let's focus on another group now and find the ones that work for you. So you can start adding a little more diversity to your diet. Uh, And then we can go back and test those other ones once we've confirmed some that are going to be okay for you.
1: Yes. So typically, and again, just my experience, I know this isn't the same for everybody working with, with, with our people is that, um, what we tend to do is we'll say, here are the list of things that seems to be most problematic for most people, right? Nightshade vegetables being one um, and brassica vegetables, right? So we kind of start with that. These are what we have seen are the most problematic in most of the people, right? And obviously there are other things like people in dairy in some people it wrecks them, right? Um, if my wife has cheese, she starts coughing, right? So, but we'll start there. And then if there is an elimination, let's say they eliminate Brassica vegetables. And that's the only thing they eliminate. And, and let's say that they do better without them. Then we then we more or less have figured it out. As far as reintroducing back, see the question, now the question seems to be, is it the vegetables that, that are doing it? Is the food that's doing it? Or is it their gut that's doing it, Right. So is the gut the problem or is the food the problem? So that, that in and of itself is another conversation because there could be other things that are causing issues with the gut. So we try to figure that out. But if we're just talking about only food for the moment, I would say that that's where we start. Here's a list of the things that typically cause the most issues with people. Let's start with that and then reintroduce them. Now, I can't say that, for example, in my case and, and some others, if the brassicas were the problem, broccoli is going to get in the same issues as cauliflower and as, as Brussels sprouts. So I, I don't know that. And again, I'm not saying that that's across the board, but in my experience, typically people who have issues with brassica have issues with all of them, not just one of them. So, um, yeah, that's more or less how we do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's interesting. Cause I mean, it's like, we, we have, we talked about this before we have a food environment that is so limitless. You almost have to group things like that just to have some sanity when you start these type of processes, but right. Um, the other one you mentioned was dairy, which I find interesting too. it. And it does seem like it's kind of hit or miss where some people just don't really seem to have issues with dairy. And in which case I think it can be a really great food, uh, food source for them, but then you have folks who struggle with it. Is there, do you, do you collect data at your clinic about like just how frequently people come in and just dairy isn't something that works well for them?
1: Yes, we have, we, we have, um, paperwork that we we log these things we report back to us um, the dairy it seems i we have people again who they, they they want to blend the lactose my experience most cases it's the casein casein
2: mm-hmm.
1: right so people people who love cheese like me uh, but i don't have any issues with matter of fact, i have the opposite of issues with with cheese i love it and it loves me back <laughs> Um, but we'll we'll work with people say, okay, let's try maybe this, 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 let's do some goat cheese, let's do some goat milk, things like that. Uh the K A2 casein foods, things like that. Um, that tends to do the trick. So we'll mark these things down. And typically, like I said, we we'll have people at least they beginning begin to report back weekly and then we'll do it monthly. Um, but as far as dairy goes, it seems at least with cheese and milk, that it's you know, the the casing that usually is the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Is that something you have to essentially trial and error a bit, or are there like tests that you can do that kind of show if someone is most likely to be susceptible to dairy allergy or negative reaction to casein?
1: You know, I I think so. There's there's a difference between allergies and sensitivities, right? So mm-hmm. I you know food allergy testing, um, sure, but I think it's you gotta you got to uh, you have to experiment yourself with it. So here's an example: food sensitivity tests. You know. They're typically not covered by insurance. Not that that means it's bad. Or a lot of our th- a lot of our services aren't covered by insurance. But um, paying out of pocket, they're expensive. They don't tell you a whole heck of a lot. And I mean, for example, you something could come up. Let's say, for example, you eat a lot of eggs, and also let's say that eggs offer you no problem whatsoever. If you eat them frequently, they can come back high on a food sensitivity test. There are a few flaws with sensitivity tests, so I would say. If you eat it how do you feel you feel do you does it make you cough like my wife or do you, do you does it have no change whatsoever then then let's then market it down let's log that so I would say the the best way is to now if we're talking about other markers though so people will say um, I drink coffee black coffee in the morning it doesn't do anything to my blood glucose I put a little cream in, I put heavy cream in there it spikes my blood glucose so we could talk about things like that you know but that hasn't to do with anything with what we're talking about but Um, experimentation is, is the best way, in my opinion, as far as that goes, the, the, the the milk, the milk thing, the casein thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Um, Do you ever, do you know, like roughly like percentage wise, how frequently it is? I mean, maybe you have a a skewed database based on people coming to are likely going to have issues to begin with, or they like, they may, (laughs) maybe wouldn't be coming to you, but is there like a, do you find like it's one out of every three people or two out of every three people, anything like that?
1: I would say it's about 35%, 35, 40%, not quite 50,
0: Okay, interesting. but, but,
1: but definitely over a quarter for sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. I think uh, this has all been really interesting stuff. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about just like the sunlight side of things, circadian rhythm and to a degree this i guess enters kind of the biohacking side of stuff but in reality mm-hmm. i don't know that it i mean sunlight i don't think really does because like that's just something before like the way we've structured houses and the way we've structured our work life and things like that it would have just been something that kind of happened the way sleep does there's no way to get around it i guess like if you live in an area where there's no sun in the winter it's going to be a little different but most people would have been access to some sort of sun sunlight at a fairly high frequency relative to what most people are nowadays. But what do you see with both just the exposure to it as well as how that kind of impacts things like sleep patterns and all that other stuff?
1: I, I think that over the past couple of years, that is the most this topic is what I I've, I've dived into the most. Um so generally speaking, easiest way, the easiest thing I, I, I tell our people, just try to keep it practical as possible is keep your days light and your nights dark, right? The best way to do that, simply put, doesn't cost you a dime. Well, it does a little bit, but try to catch a sunrise, right? Get some AM sunlight, get some, get some midday sunlight and catch a sunset. When it gets dark, if you're under artificial light, wear blue blockers. Really that simple um that's the the easiest simplest thing that i can i can tell people to start with straight away um they have you know if somebody works on a TV or excuse me a screen all day you know they have you can wear blue blockers like they even have uh covers for your computer screens that you can buy things like that so that's the simplest way that i can put it um as far as sunlight goes you know what i tell you what i i don't know where exactly along or in history that we were told that the sun is this thing that's out to kill us. And I'm not saying that you can't get too much sun because obviously you can. Um, but safe sun exposure. I'm always careful to say that safe sun exposure is in my opinion. It's right up there with eating well, right? Your light environment. So, and I even understand that during the dependent, like where I live it's dreary five months out of the year, but I have a spurt vitamin D lamp. I have a, I have a, a red light panel. I'm, I'm okay. But even in a situation like that, when it's, when it's not nice out, you can still, the sun's still there, right? It's just not beaming at you. Mm -hmm. So getting sun, you know, I tell people to get outside for 10 minutes in the morning. If you can bare feet, stand on your grass, anything that where where you're grounding, get some light in your eyes. You don't have to stare at it, but just get some exposure on your eyes and your skin. What's interesting too, is this time of year, I always do what I call priming my skin and What's funny is that people think that getting sunburnt is from getting too much sun. And it might be because you're not getting enough sun. And obviously, you can get sunburnt from not getting, or for getting too much sun. But I prime my skin this time of year. I go out, and let's say I'm out for a half hour, getting my skin primed for when the angle of the sun changes more. And during the midday, when it's more direct sunlight, my body is able to accept those higher rays right? Or the stronger rays, excuse me, because I've primed my skin. And if you look at the Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald skin scale, it can tell you where you are and the kind of skin type that you have. And you can kind of gauge that by that burning intermittent burning is bad, no doubt about it, but safe sun exposure is absolutely necessary. And I think that if you draw a line, last time I read, they said, if you draw a line, you can imagine where Georgia is on the United States map. You draw a line horizontally across that. Everybody above that is vitamin D deficient.
2: Hmm.
1: So it's, it's also interesting too, the vitamin D thing. I tell people all the time, vitamin D, the end product, the manufacturing of vitamin D isn't the, the beauty of the sun. It's all the things that happen along the way to manufacturing vitamin D. That's that is, that is that's the juicy stuff right there. So yeah, man, light, light environment is very important
2: hmm
0: You mentioned kind of hitting some sun exposure on like kind of three points during the day with the sunrise, the middle of the day, and then the sunset. Is there something that's unique about the way the rays hit you or the types of rays on those various points that makes it that much more uh, beneficial to kind of get those three different exposure points?
1: Not just the UV, but also the light spectrum, right? Because the sun has all the, the spectrum of light. The damage that comes along, the damage when we talk about blocking artificial light. So blue light, is especially bad exposure at night, right? So when we're looking at a computer screen, let's say it's at noon, what time is it right now? 12, 12, my time. We're, so right now, the specific spectrum of light that's coming off our screen is whatever it is. And this is, happens to match the time of the, the light spectrum at midday of the sun. If you look at this at seven o'clock at night, your eyes thinks it's noon. So your 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 rhythm, you your now your internal clock, your int your 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 cells in your retina, the little metronomes that we have in our retinal cells, they're backwards now. So that's so why I always say, get some sun during the day. When it gets dark out, put the blue blockers on. Really, really good way to do. It. I mean, you can find really good blue blockers for like nine bucks. So that's I always tell people that's the easiest way for me to tell them with you know to recommend some some good light environment stuff is get some sun during the day put blue blockers on at night mm-hmm. and it's important to block your skin too for blue light
0: yeah do you with the blue blocker glasses I've seen like some where I have like kind of an orange tint to them. And then I've seen some of like a, like a yellowish. Tint. And then I've seen some that are perfectly clear and they all are called blue blocker. Is there like right. a better one or is it just kind of the way that, that technology has evolved?
1: So some of the lighter ones, so you want to block the blue, you want to block greens as well. Some of those are just for like day, daytime looking at computer screens type of thing, because mm-hmm. it's not as important during the day, but, um, I don't want to name drop or anything like that. I don't have any interest in any, any, any company or anything like that. Um, but there are ab- absolutely better, better brands than others. So here's what I'll say: the the redder, the better. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More. Yeah. For for glass. So I have I have a pair that um a, re- a really good pair, um that works just fine. They're really really uncomfortable around my, my ears are all mangled. I've cauliflower. That's why I only have one earbud in. um, mm-hmm. So this, they rub against, but this, I have another pair that they're, they're amazing. And some, some of them really like you wouldn't want to wear in public, Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but you could find, you could find some that are casual that work just fine. But I, here's the thing I would do. I would tell anybody, do your due diligence on that. If somebody were to ask me for, for a specific brand, I, I could give it to them, but um, there's a lot of good guys and gals on social media that, that you can follow that always, always have some good ones. Sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: Interesting. Um. You mentioned uh, cauliflower ear. Are you a jujitsu wrestler or anything like that? Grappler?
1: Yeah. So I do Brazilian jujitsu. Um, it's, it's like a, it's my, I tell people it's my therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing it for all well, about eight, eight or nine years and uh, it's awesome, man. But it's, it, you, you're, it, I tell people it's, it's not for, it's not for everybody, but it is for everybody. And people that ask me about it a lot, they say, you know, how do you know when you, when I like it? And I say, well, when you do it. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, you'll, you'll know really, really quickly because people come to our Academy, they show up, they're fired up they're excited about it and you never see them again. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, 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 it's it's something that I love to do. It's very, very hard, um, on the body, but whatever. So, so a lot of things, but it's, it's, I train about, I train about five days a week and I'm an old guy, man, in the jujitsu world. I'll, I'll be 46 this year. So, um, I pace myself to make sure, you know, that I'm not getting too messed up, but mm-hmm. it's, 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 awesome.
0: Yeah. I think with, I mean, I was, I'm generally excited. Anytime I see like a new sport like, jujitsu is obviously not new, but a sport that is either new or somewhat forgotten for a period of time, at least in, in our region, get popular again, because it's I mean, as adults, I think like we've kind of remove ourselves from this environment where we were in a youth, maybe not so much as much today, but when I was young, where you get exposed to so many different like sports and activities, it's like, you just kind of move around a lot by default. It's just built into the structure of things for the most part. And then you hit a certain age and like 90% of those things all of a become like childish. And then just like, oh yeah, I'm an adult now. So I can't go do that and it's like yeah. what like so anytime there's like something other than like your typical like oh I go to the gym and hop on the you know the stairmaster or I'm going to go I say go for a run as a professional runner but like you know these things that people I think are just they're they're the low hanging fruit options that people think like they match the adult profile a little better they're accessible and they're they don't necessarily require like a lot of extra people to be involved necessarily so They ended up getting picked, but it's just a small select group of things that there's a huge chunk of the population that are going to white knuckle through it versus actually enjoy it. So like, I mean, you probably go to jujitsu all five times, ready to go and wanting to be there. And it's rare when you don't. And if you don't, it's probably because you either just, you actually do need the rest or you're not feeling good for whatever reason. And, and. And I think like, if we could get a little more same, this is the same thing with the nutrition stuff, more options for people to pick from, we have a better success rate of people finding something they actually want to do and will stick to doing and get excited about it. Cause there's no reason why moving our body should feel tedious. Like it's something we have right. to do.
1: Right. I agree hundred percent. Well, even too, like, like you mentioned with the, with the running thing, like, so you're, you're running is to you what jujitsu is to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you, you, you have to love going through that because it's pain, right? Mm-hmm. And at the beginning at the at the beginning of uh whenever March 2020, um our academy closed for about 3 weeks. That was it. Then our professor so would you I guess what people would call a sensei in karate, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, that person is called a professor. Mm-hmm. So after 3 weeks after the first 3 weeks that he was closed, our professor said, "Nah. We're we're not we're opening back up." So I was 3 weeks without jujitsu. And mentally it was a big difference. My wife even told me, she's like, you need to go back to the Academy <laughs> because, because I was getting on her nerves. I mean, yeah. I was I mean it was crazy. It was incredible. So, you know, I think, you know, I, I I'll say this it's very humbling. I would have, I would have never been able to do it in my twenties because I had too big of an ego and I would have went in and got my butt kicked and I'd be like, Oh, and I would have quit. So, now, you know, I started in my thirties and, you know, my ego is a little bit better and you enjoy the butt kickings because you learn how to do it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you see so the end game. <laughs> that's exactly right. But it is very, it is very enjoyable. It is. It's, it's more a mental thing for me than anything else.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Very cool. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking some time and coming on the show. I, I want to give you a chance before we, before we let you go to share with the listeners where they can find you if they want to follow along on your journey or See what you have to say about various health and fitness topics.
1: Sure, thanks, Zach. So uh, you can find me up on Twitter. My only social media is at Doctor Nick Griner, and I'm um, a website. The name of my clinic is Griner Health Solutions, and my website is grinerhealthsolutions.com. And uh, yeah, it's basically it.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again for taking some time and,
1: and coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. Appreciate it, buddy. Take care. You too. Bye bye.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.